pleasure to welcome David Field to this podcast, uh, which in which we'll be discussing the editorial he has just co-written with Jenna Deeming and Lucy Smith. They're discussing an interesting index paper, a systematic review of moral distress within neonatal and paediatric intensive care units. This is a systematic review which is about to come out by a group in Melbourne, looking at the literature and extracting themes from the quite uh, scarce literature on, on the theme. Um, their conclusions, despite the uh, relative paucity of literature, are quite strong in that they feel that their key themes are that moral distress affects the care of patients in intensive care, but with some implications for practice. David's a professor of neonatal medicine in Leicester and an old friend of mine, and um, welcome, David. Hello, Nick. To start with, um, for those who aren't aware of the subtle differences in definitions, could you could you tell us a bit more about the, the exact definition of moral distress as opposed to moral dilemmas with um, any examples you have? As far as I can work out, I think the term moral distress really uh, derives from that time where, particularly in intensive care settings, nurses were closely involved with the day-to-day care of often very, very sick patients. And this, this is both adults and children and newborns. But at that time, it was really the doctors who uh, made the decisions. And the, if the nurse didn't uh, feel comfortable with that, she was left uh, in distress over the kind of decision that, that had been made. Whereas the doctor at the time, I think, would have seen it differently, that they, perhaps recognising that... Uh, there were one or more options that they could go for in terms of making recommendations about the patient's care. And that, for them, was a dilemma. And I think that, that sort of summarizes the difference. I think the, the point that we try to make in the editorial is that these are not sort of fixed uh, points in terms of how we function as a, a medical specialty in our relations with uh, families. And that now, I think, the the situation has moved on again. So actually, the the group with the most power are the parents. And so we have a situation where it may be that it's the parents that are driving the decision to carry on with treatment in the face of recommendations that actually it's not in the child's interest. And it's now both the nurses and the doctors who are um, in distress at having to cope with that. Of course, it's not always the case, but I think that, that, if you like, to my mind, uh, exemplifies how these things have developed and changed over time. That's, that's very interesting. Uh, the, some of the literature in their, in their review is actually quite old. Some goes back to 1985. So I suspect that reflects a, a lot of their findings reflect the earlier studies and those in the future might make some slightly different findings. Do you have any 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 examples of your own or anecdotal ones to to to, to illustrate? Well, I think I think they sort of there are a lot. I think for every, anyone who works in intensive care settings, there will be a lot of examples. But I suppose the it might be helpful to think back so that perhaps when I was I was first a consultant or in the period when I was about to become a consultant. If you had a child who had suffered a uh, hypoxic brain injury, certainly at that point, predominantly the decision about whether intensive care should be continued was, was made by uh, the consultant with the, the parents uh, acquiescing. Whereas now, I think, although we try to achieve that, 
I think there is much more onus on the parents positively being accepting of the decision. And so if they were to say, uh, we don't agree with your, your recommendation, that would carry, carry the, the day, and, and that was how we would carry on. And you can, you can translate that into all sorts of um, other uh, conditions in terms of how we uh, operate now, so that children with anterior horn cell uh, disease um, you know, where we have a very clear understanding of how that condition is going to play out and the child's quality of life for the future, there will still be parents who want to maintain their child long-term on ventilation. We used to think very hard about, uh, this. I'm going back to the, the 80s, about treating children with Down syndrome. And there are some famous cases where uh, children were made wards of court in order that they got uh, treatment in the 80s, whereas now that, that would, would never be considered. But we are in the same situation with children with trisomy 13 and trisomy 18, where some parents are wanting for uh, medical support for those uh, those children. So those are the sorts of situations where, depending your personal point of view, and of course doctors are not a, un, uh, a uniform bunch and nor are nurses, you, you might accept look at those situations and those decisions and feel comfortable with them, or you may feel that we're not doing the right thing for the child. Those, those I think, are the sort of practical day-to-day -day situations. No, that, that's, that's very interesting. And I, 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 I noticed you'd mentioned the Leonard Arthur case uh, right, right at the start of your, your editorial, and that's, that, that, I, I, I recall the case quite well and, and the way the thinking evolved over, over the rest of that decade. Um, so how, how do parents... You've, you've, you've touched on this. How, how do parents get drawn into these decisions, and um, um, or how do you involve them? Well, I, I think this is now an essential part of how we function. If you look at the GMC guidance on um, the sort of reorientation of care, it essentially says that if the parents do not agree, you cannot move from a, a, an active, uh, aggressive approach in keeping the child alive to a palliative one. So whereas it was, if you like, certainly 30 years ago, uh, if we're looking at the sort of Leonard Arthur case, at that time it was, it was almost um, you, you told the parents what you were doing. Now it is an essential element of uh, the discussions that, that take place about how the child is cared for particularly around where, where ultimately the child may not survive. I think it's much more difficult where, actually saying it's much more difficult is probably the, the wrong way of putting it. I think it, it's, of course, essential where the, the, it's a decision about interventions to uh, try and enhance or alter quality of life where the child is not going to survive. I think that, that's a, a given. But I, I suppose one of the things that w we want to emphasize is that there has been this dramatic change with time. This whole thing is, is moving, and it's, it's going to carry on moving in terms of how we deal with them. So we've gone from a situation where it was a sort of courtesy to involve parents to being the parents have the, have the ultimate say, and how that will go forward in the future, uh, who can say? The, I mean, the, the, the GMC of, of issue guidance, as you alluded to, and the, the, the RCPCH have also issued quite extensive guidance. But are, are there any situations, and I, 
suspect I know know the answer here, but when you when even that that guidance as well might be insufficient. I I think that the trouble with all guidance, whoever, whoever issues it, it kind of envisages a fairly standardised situation, and of course we rarely have that because. Uh, not only do the families vary in terms of their understanding and in terms of their background, their knowledge, their religious beliefs, but also the, the doctors as well. And I think that, to me, is the difficulty. When the guidance doesn't quite fit the situation, uh, who do you turn to? I think in this country we've not really had a... Um, a history of using clinical ethics committees where you kind of go to a, an outside body to help make these decisions. Um, and my experience of when that has happened, they're often not terribly helpful. But who do you turn to uh, if you're the consultant uh, or a group of consultants and you're uh, coming to a conclusion that you're not of the same mind as a particular parent? What's the intermediate step before going to court? Taking another step in that direction, how in these situations are sometimes near insoluble. Are there any preventative measures that can be taken to to, to mitigate the um, the intensity of circumstances? Yeah, I, I think you know units vary in this regard, really, in the extent to which they are open about discussing with staff how these. Um, decisions are reached and how you handle the situation where the professionals are not agreeing with the the parents when that happens it tends to be there tends to be a sort of an, an ad hoc approach it's either dealt with by a small group of people or you might have a sort of a debrief at the end of the process but i i think maybe we're going to have to be cleverer at um how we handle these situations, how we kind of um, conduct our discussions with staff so that we're, we, we, the professionals, are, uh, are clear in our views about what we present to parents. How we go beyond that, where there is kind of an ongoing uh, disagreement in terms of dealing with the distress that that causes, because going to court and having to give evidence is, is distressing for everyone. I don't think we've 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 kind of got a, a plan that uh, operates in in many uh, hospitals because of course it's a rare situation. But I think maybe we're going to have to think about that how we support staff, either to come to terms with the fact that they're going to have to provide care that they don't feel is appropriate, or simply just dealing with the stress of of getting through that period. And then obviously long term there are the societal implications if um, if these children do survive. Well, I think that's that's all part of that's all part of how we um, how we perhaps take these things forward. Because looking looking at where we've come from and where we're going to, if we are gradually going to provide active support for a wider and wider group of children that in the recent past we've not done so. So we've about Down syndrome, but you know, increasingly now we're seeing children with uh, spina bifida not being terminated because parents have decided that they'll continue the pregnancy. Or if those sorts of things are going to continue, then there will be long-term implications for services. And it's all very well counselling families, uh, either before delivery or soon after, that there will be support in, in the community, uh, there will be physiotherapy, but uh, certainly as many uh, professionals will be fully aware 
the availability of those services is not all that it might be in most areas of the country. And therefore, if we are moving to a situation where we uh, are pushed to provide more aggressive treatment for children who are very, very unlikely to have a normal quality of life and, and are almost certainly going to need these services, it's, I think, uh, important that we are honest in what we can provide or as a country, we decide that we are going to spend more on these services and uh, ensure that they're there to meet the expectations of families. Thanks. Well, that's a very thought-provoking place to stop and um, or, or perhaps to continue on from what's been a really interesting discussion based on a really interesting editorial. Thanks, thanks very much for joining us. That's fine. Thank you, Nick.